Hosea and Gomer. Hosea and Gomer. Why both? Well, because both of their stories are so tied together that it's impossible to tell either one without the other. They are so knit together that you can't tell either one of their stories properly without the other one's influence. And so we're going to look at both of them today. We're going to wrap them together in one big ball and make it happen. But let's round out the profile a little bit. A serious man, destitution for sale, means plus resolve. Y'all ready to get into it? All right, question number one. How were Hosea and Gomer raised up? Well, with a serious name. Look at chapter one of Hosea, verse one. The word of the Lord that came to who? Hosea. So what's so special about the name Hosea? Well, it has the same Hebrew root, Yasha, as Hosea, Joshua, and Jesus. If you share a root definition of your name with Joshua, Hosea, and Jesus, you're going places, right? Yeah, so what does Yasha mean? Yasha means to deliver. Salvation, to, to deliver. And so God raises up a prophet named the deliverer. Think we're setting the bar high? Probably a little bit. Yeah, we're setting the bar really high here. But listen, deliverance isn't necessary if there's not also a great problem to be delivered from. And so, not only do we see a serious name, but we also see a serious season. Look at the rest of verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Okay, so there's several things to point out here. Um, a couple of them obvious, some of them not so obvious. Right? Uh, but there's, the obvious one is pretty easy. There's a name in here you should recognize from last week. What do I, who was it? Jeroboam, the son of who? Joash. So who is he? He was the king of the northern kingdom during our story last week, the prophet Jonah, right? All right so Jonah's story plays out near the beginning of Jeroboam II's reign. And here, Hosea's story plays out near the end of his reign. Uh, Jeroboam reigned about 40-ish years in the northern kingdom, which is almost twice as long as any other king in the northern kingdom. So he, he sat on the throne of the northern kingdom way longer than anybody else. All right? But for timeline's sake, Hosea's story is coming right on the hills of Jonah's. Right? It feels weird because Jonah, comes, uh, Jonah and Hosea are swapped in the Bible, and I keep telling you that's because of the, their group categorically, not because of when they were written. Right? But Hosea's story comes right on the heels of Jonah's story. Right? But here is where it gets complicated because Hosea lists four kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He lists four kings of the neighboring nation of Judah, and he lists one king of the nation he's in, Jeroboam II. So what's the deal? Why is that complicated? Well, because these timelines don't line up completely. Two of these kings, Uzziah and Jotham, reigned during the same time as Jeroboam. The other two kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah, reigned in Judah after Jeroboam was dead. Like, they didn't, they didn't even ascend to the throne until long after Jeroboam was dead. So, is Hosea working during the time of the four kings of Judah? Or is he working during the time period of the king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam? Nope. He's working during the time period of the four kings of Judah. 
Hosea doesn't step onto the scene. Hosea doesn't step onto the scene until almost the time that Jeroboam dies. So why would he list that he's working during the time period of Jeroboam? Well, it's because things fall apart really, really fast after Jeroboam dies. Really fast. Israel has six kings over the next 31 years after Jeroboam the Jeroboam II dies, which on the surface doesn't sound like it's, like it's a bad deal, but half of those kings don't make it more than two years. All but one of those kings are murdered and usurped by the guy following them. And all of those kings are more wicked than the guy that they replaced. Oh yeah, and one more thing. Those are the last six kings of the northern kingdom. Which means Jeroboam dies in, I got it written down here, 753 BC and Israel falls to the Assyrian Empire in 722. In other words, Israel goes into a 31-year tailspin after Jeroboam II dies. And it ends with the empire of Assyria. Remember we talked about them last week? Time and inertia finally do what time and inertia do. 31 years later, Assyria comes in and wipes them out. And so Hosea is a prophet that not only predicts the downfall of Israel, the downfall of the northern kingdom, but he's a prophet standing there watching it all happen. That's a fun job, right? But why did it fall? I mean, was it poor leadership? Yeah, kind of, but way more than that, right? Was it the, the, the dissolving of their political alliances? Yeah, but also way more than that. The biggest decline was spiritually. Uh, if, if you read the whole letter, we're not going to have a chance to read it today, but uh, Baal worship is flourishing again, but this time it's mixed with a healthy dose of syncretism. So what's syncretism? Well, it's when you take product A and you take product B and you mix them together to where neither one of them look like what you started with and you have product C. That's a problem just about any time you do that. But when you do it with religions, well, you end up in a really, really, really weird place. When you syncretize religions, you end up with terrible, terrible things, And actually. And so the Israelites are kind of worshiping God, and they're kind of worshiping Baal, and then they've got this all, lines are being blurred, and they've got this weird mixture of the two, and then you throw in a bunch of sexual acts of worship, which had kind of begun in this culture at this time period, and you start to begin to think that maybe God's not too happy with the way things are playing out in Israel right now. Right? Yeah, you think God's happy with the, just mix me in with the Baal crowd? Just mix me in with, with their sexual acts of worship. You think he's excited about that? And so God raises up a prophet named the Deliverer to speak his mind about some things. And so God raises up the Deliverer. And we finally get to see that Hosea is raised up also with a serious calling. A serious calling. Look at the next little bit, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Not polite words. Verse 3, So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of the Blam, I think, and she conceived and bore him a son. 
So Hosea, God raises up Hosea to serve as a living parable. Right? He's going to use his life to, to teach a greater truth, a much bigger overarching truth than just his life, right? And so uh, God tells him to marry a prostitute, and he finds a girl named Gomer. God tells him to do so in order to provide a picture of God's current relationship with his covenant bride, the Israelites. You think Hosea has an easy life? You think that's an easy calling? It's going to be complicated at the very least, right? But then they start having kids, so look at verse 4. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So Hosea and Gomer have, a, have their first kid, and the, God tells them to name it Jezreel. So what's special about the name Jezreel? Well, it's the name of a valley outside of where they're standing right now. And it's a valley that uh, was a part of several battles, famous battles. Uh, uh, lots of different battles in the Old Testament happened all throughout the Old Testament in the valley of Jezreel. All right? and then, but there's also this guy named Jehu. And so one of the most famous battles uh, in Jezreel was Jehu, a commander in Ahab's army. Remember when we were talking about Elijah and King Ahab? Right? Jehu is told by God to get rid of Ahab and his dynasty because Ahab was the most wicked king that Israel ever had, remember? And so Jehu does that, and there's lots of bloodshed, and everybody dies, and Jehu makes himself king, and he sets up a new dynasty. Except Jehu's dynasty is just as bad as Ahab's dynasty, just as sinful, just as wicked. And so God says, hey, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm finally going to put this to rest here. But God tells Hosea to name his first kid after a valley? Why? Well, in Hebrew... Somebody's phone's ringing. In Hebrew, the name Israel would be pronounced Yisrael. And Jezreel would be pronounced Yisrael. They're homophones. They're homophones. Jezreel, we think, we're not exactly sure, but we think might mean Scattered. So, follow me here. God tells Hosea, a guy whose life is supposed to be a picture, a parable of something bigger, that his firstborn son is to, to have a name that's kind of like God's people, sounds like God's people, but not actually God's people, and might literally mean the scattered ones. Feeling ominous yet? Look at verse 6. She... Gomer conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. Some of your translations may say Lo Ruhamah, that's, that's just the Hebrew for No Mercy. Some translated it, some didn't. All right. Call her name No Mercy. That's the kid's name. That's a fun name. All right. for, I, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God, and I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy she conceived and bore a son and the lord said call his name not my people some of your translations may say lo ami that's the same thing it's the hebrew just hadn't been translated call his name not my people for you are not my people and i am not your god so the first kid is named an intentional degradation of israel 
The second kid is named No Mercy. The third kid is named Not My People. You think God's getting to a point here? Hosea is raised up to serve as a living parable. And so God has Hosea marry a prostitute and he gives these three kids these incredibly ominous names in order to teach a bigger reality. If you haven't put the pieces together by now, that message is that God's relationship with his covenant people is a gigantic mess right now. Right? How do you think Hosea's house looks on a daily basis? It's a gigantic mess. Chaos and drama and brokenness everywhere. That's exactly what God is pointing to in the nation of Israel. Israel is far from him. Israel is broken. Israel has drama and chaos and disobedience everywhere. And the results it's producing are less than desirable. So why would God be so upset at Israel? Why would he be so angry to use this picture? Well, we can kind of ask the question a different way. This living parable keeps going. What made Hosea and Gomer a bad choice? Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Verse 1 of chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, the Lord's talking to Hosea, the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. A lethic is like half a homer, so it's a homer and a half of barley. All right, verse 3. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I will also be to you. Okay, so Gomer runs away. It's not explicit in the text, but it's inferred in the text, right? Right? It doesn't tell us that Gomer runs away, but here we see go again, right? And so uh, when we put all the pieces together, we believe that at some point in this story, at least once, at least once, possibly multiple times, but at some point in the story, at least once, Gomer runs off again into prostitution. Happy days in the Hosea house. So why do we think that it might be several times? Well, back in chapter 1, when we see the naming of the kids, it explicitly tells us that the firstborn belongs to Hosea. That phrase is absent in the Hebrew in, in the other two kids. That phrase is very rarely absent in the Hebrew whenever you're reading through genealogies in the Bible. Again, it's not explicit, but it's hanging there. So this may be a repeating cycle. But here in chapter 3, Gomer runs off, possibly again. She, she rejects Hosea. She rejects the life that they've built together. She seems to reject her children. We don't see that in the text either. Gomer walks away from everything. All so that she can run back to the arms of other men. And then we see this little scene about Hosea purchasing her. So what's that all about? Well, we think at some point in the story, Hosea, or not Hosea, Gomer finds herself in slavery. She's become enslaved in her actions somehow. She's become enslaved in her actions. She's broken, she's destitute, and she's likely standing on an auction block at the moment. 
She's standing on an auction block. And there's, there's all these historical and cultural things that, that, that aren't mentioned in this part of the text, but we put together based on what we know about the culture and what we know about the season of history and all those kinds of things. And there's all these pieces that we can put together. Right? Uh, like, for instance, if she's being sold as a prostitute, then it's highly likely she's standing there in such a way that everybody can see exactly what they're bidding on. Not exactly an incredibly dignifying moment, right? Secondly, we think that the going rate for a slave at this part of history in this part of the world was 30 shekels of silver. But what price did we see here? 15 shekels and some barley. Which means what? Well, she's not even getting the going rate, right? It also means that none of the, the men, the lovers that she has, is willing to pony up even the going rate. They just assume let somebody else buy her. Gomer's story is an absolutely tragic one, right? She ran off to chase her sin. She ran off to chase after the things that she thought would satisfy her. She thought would fulfill her. She thought would bring her joy. And those very things have not only robbed her of everything she walked away from, but they've also robbed her of her dignity and even the affections of those that she was chasing after. After they're done with her, they're just done with her. I'm sure there are some of you who feel like her story is all too familiar, right? You, you chased after the thing that you thought would give you joy, that you thought would bring you completion, all to the detriment of the things that you walked away from. That you thought would give you, get you over that edge. And then when you finally got there, you found out the hard way, just how empty and unsatisfying it was. Gomer isn't the only one who's walked through this path, right? Not even close. Gomer's a woman who needs to be redeemed on pretty much every level that someone could be redeemed. Like, we've, we've danced around this question through all of our other characters. No, they need to be redeemed because they're a jerk. They need to be redeemed because they had this sin. They need to be redeemed because they had this great sin. You know, Gomer needs to be redeemed on pretty much every level someone can be redeemed. So how does God redeem them? Well, there are five very important words in verse one. Did you catch them? Go again Love a woman. See, Gomer has her brokenness, but Hosea has his too, right? Like, despite the rejection and the sorrow that Hosea is probably experiencing through all this, God puts it in Hosea's heart to love her. Love her. Don't, don't think duty here. Don't think begrudging, I gotta do this because I made a vow. He loves her effectually. And that effectual love is shown as he goes and buys his own wife off the auction block. They live in a culture where he doesn't have to do this. Right? Like, wait. We create these stories for ourselves and these Hallmark movies for ourselves where, where, where everything kind of comes together at the end, but that's not the culture that Jose and Gomer are living in. He is well within his rights to walk away and walk away for good. 
But God puts it in his heart to love her. As she stands there waiting for somebody, anybody to value her and put forward efforts to have her, Hosea steps in and rescues her out of bondage. He pays up. He buys her out of slavery. Like Boaz, generations before him, Hosea has the means and the resolve to do something about her issue. He steps in to redeem. And the first words out of his mouth are not, how could you do this to our family? What were you thinking? But you will be mine. You will be mine. Quit chasing after lesser lovers. I will be yours. You will be mine. And listen, if you know your Bibles well, you know that that sounds an awful lot like a little conversation that God had with his covenant people at the foot of Mount Sinai. I have rescued you. Quit chasing after others. You will be mine. See, all throughout the book of Hosea, God is saying to his covenant people, return to me. Quit chasing other things. Quit chasing other gods. Quit chasing other pleasures. Return to me. If you will but yet repent, we'll have our own little happily ever after. Return to me. But you know the timeline already. That doesn't exactly play out like it's supposed to, is it? Over and over again, God says, I have sought you out in your destitution. I have paid the debt that you owe, and I have purchased you for myself. Return to me. You will be mine. And that leads us to our fourth question for the morning. How does their story preach God's gospel? How does Hosea and Gomer's story preach God's gospel? And the obvious answer is the same way yours does. Same way mine does. But I thought this was a little picture for ancient Israel, right? I mean, the circumstances are certainly different. We don't have the threat of political upheaval, of turning over our country, looming over our heads for failure to repent. But the way God saves his people hasn't changed. I didn't just come up with a new way after Jesus stepped onto the scene. He purchases a people for himself. Salvation by grace through faith, through the death of Jesus on the cross, is pretty much the entire Bible. He seeks us out in our brokenness and our sin. He seeks us out wallowing in the after effects of lesser lovers, and he buys us for himself. That's the gospel, guys. He calls us his own, he cleans us up, and he carries us home. God takes those who are far from him and have ruined themselves with their own sin and shame, and he pays the price, he looks them in the eye and says, you will be mine. You will be mine. He redeems and restores and rebuilds, he cleanses and he chastens and he consecrates. See, if you're here this morning and you don't know the God I'm talking about, regardless of whether or not you call yourself a Christian, like if the idea of who God is thinks, leaves you thinking that he just doesn't care, if your picture of God in your head leaves you thinking that he just assumed leave you on the auction block, and you don't know the God of the Bible, not even close, 
Because there's one overarching theme to this series. Over and over and over again, it plays out the exact same way. And we did it this way on purpose because that's the point of the Bible. God raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in in Jesus. And today we learn that God raised up Hosea to be a far more eternal, far more beautiful, far more life-bringing, far more redeeming Hosea to come in Jesus. This is the story of God. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus saw our condition and was intentional about coming to do something about it. He stepped down from his heavenly throne, took on form of a servant. He put on flesh and dwelt among us so that and came and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He purchases us for himself and says, you will be mine. You will be mine. This is the story of God. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God today, and you do that best by pressing into his word. Consider starting with the book of Hosea. God gave it to us so that we might know him. So go find him there. We can take another step into this. Maybe maybe Hosea's story, Gomer's story, sounds a lot like yours. You got example after example after example of chasing after the thing that you thought would bring you joy, spurning God all along the way. Example after example of running to lesser lovers. Sinful things that you thought would satisfy and you thought would bring you comfort, thought would bring you completion. But God is a jealous husband in the best sense of the term. He will not sit idly by and allow you to run off to things that will ultimately hurt you. He will not sit idly by and go, I guess that's what they wanted. He pursues you. He pursues his people. If you will but yet turn and repent, we'll have our own little happily ever after Return to me. You will be mine. Church, today's a good day to repent of sin and press into him. It's a good day to repent of sin and press into him. I'm going to sing. We're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of leaders up front here to, to talk and pray with you if that would serve you well this morning. If you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus. I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. You can respond to God's word too this morning. You do that. You do that. But meaning the one that this story is all about. Jesus. He came to be the payment that we talked about in Hosea 3. To buy us off the auction block. But see, Hosea's story doesn't just start. Hosea's, in Gomer's redemption story, doesn't just start in chapter 3. It starts in chapter 1, right? When God tells him to go after, seek after the one who doesn't seem to deserve his love. To intentionally go after and unite himself, covenantly join himself with someone that everyone around is going, why them? We come to the table the exact same way, right? You and I have nothing to offer to him, and yet God says, you will be mine. You will be mine. So maybe today's the day that you're ready to walk in the grace that he's offering to you. I'm going to pray. 
We're going to sing. You come find me and talk if you want to talk about it. I'd love to walk you through what that looks like. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the story of Hosea. Thank you for being a God who redeems folks like Gomer. God, I think when we first approach this story, I think, we, I think we're turned off a little bit by a God who would say the things you said and command the things you command. But it's really because we see ourselves incorrectly. We see ourselves as Hosea's in the story rather than the Gomer's. God, you redeem and you rescue. You bring to salvation. You raise up a deliverer. God, you, you came yourself. You put on flesh and you dwelt among us. You got into the nitty-gritty of our world and paid the price that was necessary. Even though you could have walked away, even though you certainly didn't need. Probably could have been much better off without. Yet you love effectually. You seek us out even after we've run from you for the thousandth time. You pursue your bride. You see us in our destitution and our sin and our shame as dignity has been stripped away. You pay the price that is necessary. You pick us up. You look us in the eye. You will be mine. God, if there's anybody in here who's wrestling with the hurts and the pains of a broken world this week and wrestling with the hurts and pains of broken hearts this week, hearts that stray, hearts that set our eyes on lesser things, would you lift our chin and would you look us in the eye? God, if there's those of us in here who don't know you at all this morning, would you meet us where we're at? Would you lift our chin? God, you purchase a people for yourself, and we are delighted to be that people. But we stray so easy, time and again. you are the deliverer. So deliver us again. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?